This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, it's Eric. Welcome to episode 10 of season three of Climify. I'm excited for the guest we have for you today. As it just so happens, Sage Lanier was just named a 2023 Time Magazine Next Generation Leader. She is the second of three episodes dedicated to climate education. She created, as an undergrad, a course called Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future, which has enrolled 1,800 students in counting at UC Berkeley. What stuck out to me in the conversation with Sage were two things. First, how passionate and focused she is on climate education. She started a hugely popular course as a student at a Research One University. That's dedication and strength. And second, I was struck by her comments lamenting about having to be a climate activist and how she felt already burned out by it at such a young age. Sage is right that she and her generation should not have to be the ones to save ourselves from ourselves when it comes to the climate crisis. It's unfair, because that's the situation they are in. And like Sage, there are many Gen Z fighting for their future where every fraction of a degree matters. Hi, my name is Sage Lanier. I'm a youth climate education activist and the founder of Sustainable and Just Future, a nonprofit fighting for just that. And you can find me on social media at Sage Lanier. Welcome, Sage. Thanks for being on the program today. It's great to speak with you again, and this time recorded. So I'm glad that you have the time today to uh, talk with us. Thanks, Eric. So I wanted to start off with just asking you how you got into uh, climate action. What what was uh, was there a tipping point for you? Where did this interest in your work start? I was definitely coming more from the social justice side of things. I was a really passionate teenager when it came to feminism, racial justice, etc. And I came to environmentalism with the realization that there's no human rights on a dead planet. So kind of just one movement to encapsulate them all. Right. Everything's connected. So I, I like to think about both at the same time, because I don't think you can like divorce right. those two topics. I mean, you said it very eloquently, right? There's uh, on a dead planet. You don't. Well, I've just been doing so many interviews and the amount of times I've been get, uh, pitching myself in the past couple of weeks has been hilarious. I saw on your website, you're going to be like in Forbes. There's There's a lot of things that you have coming up. Yeah, Teen Vogue, hopefully soon. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's not very much excited for that. I have held a Teen Vogue in my hand, but I have never been <laughs> involved in anything with them. So quite an they're honor for you. Really, they're really radical. It's it's surprising, but they're like very anti-capitalist. Like I know. I actually I've been I've read articles in Teen Vogue online where I was mm -hmm. like, this is Teen Vogue. Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. This seems like uh, like a totally other different magazine. So, the way the way that I found you though, uh, was through the class that you created at Cal Berkeley, and then I think I found your website and then into your social media world. And I would like to know more about that class you 
you or that initiative you created at, at Cal Berkeley and how that all started. Okay. So the reason I basically ended up being a youth climate education activist specifically is because I just feel like education is the biggest barrier to the movement getting any bigger. The environmental education, I mean, environmental education as it stands is largely non-existent. It's kind of crazy that we're churning out, you know, hundreds of thousands of people with high school diplomas, college degrees who still don't understand anything about the ecological systems that keep us alive or the role that their career and life is about to play in that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still putting out people who have a profit motive or who, you know, they're very passionate about design, fashion, whatever, but they aren't like equipped to do that from an ecological or even just social manner of like fair wages and whatnot. So that was what I was kind of like, my, imp- my, I guess, origin story was me being like, I'm so overwhelmed by all these problems. I feel like maybe the biggest problem is that no one even knows them. Yeah, I can't solve them all myself. I need more people. So like, I need a bigger movement so that we can, we can get it moving. So yeah, so I started teaching uh, my own class to my peers, Berkeley, because I really just hated the education I was getting there. I felt like, you know, you have these you, these professors who are much older than us, and that, it matters, uh, you know, because they don't feel the urgency that someone you know, who is going to live in that world yeah. would feel. Uh, and they were just either, you know, giving these doomsday sermons and you had students literally leaving the classroom in tears or having panic attacks or switching their majors because it was just too much of their mental health. Yeah. Or it was just so abstract and distant and far away sounding that it was like no, you know, no real world application. So we were just bored. And I was like, I don't know how you're making the world's most pressing crises sound boring but it's yeah yeah, i so for me i've always 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 been about the solutions uh it's not a matter of okay let's spend an entire you know 16 week semester understanding how bad the problem is and the nuances of the problem i don't think we need to keep doing that so we in my program introduced the program uh, the problem introduced the problem just enough that you know that there is one and that like yeah, it's not working. That's the first step, right? Yeah. Right, right. But we spend the majority of our time talking about the solutions mm-hmm. and just kind of phrasing it as like, okay, this is how things are not working. Here's how things are going to be from now on. We're in on this. You're getting involved. You know, we are now co-conspirators. We're building a better world. Let's get it going. And so like yeah. not... Like, yes, we do do a good job, I would say. I will say. We do a really good job at at communicating the problem. I think some people are like, what, you want people to be delusional? Like, you want people not... Like, the situation is really bad. How are you going to be positive about it? And I'm like, you, we just need to focus on the next steps. Yeah, and like, what's the, the point of dwelling in, in, in all the exactly. negativity of it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so was this an official, like, on-the-books class, or was this something that you're doing outside of that. Yep, on the books. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, it's actually uh, the same students who, this is what I've been told. I've actually never quite looked it up, so maybe this is not entirely true. But the same students who advocated for the the establishment of the first Afro Studies program in the United States Mm -hmm. 
those black students also were advocating for the establishment of a democratic education program because they were saying like education shouldn't be restricted to old white people with phds yeah so we have this really robust program for student-led education typically student-led classes they're called decals democratic education at cal they're not very large so the novel thing that that i did was i have the largest ever it was big by the what it sounded like online yeah we've had 1800 people go through the program so far my wow. the largest semester was 300 but that was just a bit unmanageable 300 uh, students in one class is unmanageable <laughs> yeah and you can see the photos on our website uh it's pretty cool i'm still really proud of it uh, but yeah, so we scaled back after that and we're kind of hovering between 150 and 200 a semester now. That's still a lot of students. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And we always have maxed out wait lists because people are just so passionate about it. Not this semester. This semester there's a scheduling issue, but whatever. <laughs> but yeah, so it is a two-unit class. You can find it on the school registrar as Solutions for a Sustainable and Just Future. Now, is this, I went in thinking about it like hey i'm not a student at cal berkeley is this something that someone could take maybe in the future that it's not necessarily in the way that it's designed meaning continuing education or something like that i would love to we don't have quite the resources for that yet but that is like you know that's the establishment of the nonprofit. that's our goal we want to make this uh, we want to make solutions oriented environmental ed as accessible as possible so we're really being flexible in the ways that we're expanding. Ideally, I would like to write a book. I would love to write a oh, book good. that's just open access so you can get, because I, the beautiful thing about the program at Berkeley, as it stands, is it's really a crash course. Mm -hmm. Everything I think you need to know about the planet. So we do food systems and we do circular economy. We have this whole section on like, like this whole module really about how we can build a low carbon circular economy in which resources are cycling and it's like zero waste by principle and it's like more based on knowledge and services and experiences rather than selling tangible goods because you can, I mean, 45% of global greenhouse gas emissions are related to the production of consumer goods and people don't realize, mm -hmm. I, I could go into that, but just the whole like individual action doesn't make a difference and it's like, yes, it does. It does. Or, you're an American. Thank you. you outsize environmental impact. So we have a lot of power to create change in that system as well, which should be like, you know, encouraging and not, you shouldn't feel attacked by that. You should feel excited because mm -hmm. you do have so much more power than a lot of the people in the world. So yeah. So we have all of these different topics, urban planning, and it's kind of just like a crash course vision for a better world. So I'd mm -hmm. like to be able to turn that into a book. But when we're... So with the goals of a nonprofit, we're just trying to get environmental education institutionalized and available in different places. So one day I would like to have some e-courses. I think that's maybe a little further down the line, maybe like a year, hopefully, if we're being ambitious. But I think it could also be cool to, well, okay, no, we are also working uh, to work with educators and establish either better or more environmental education, whether that's like pushing them towards the solution side, the action side, creating actionable campaigns in their schools, or alternatively working with students to either set up educational programs at their schools yeah. or to set up an advocacy program 
to advocate to their educators. So there's kind of like three major things we're doing on the education side uh, in terms of like working to get it institutionalized. But then we also would like to create our own podcast, YouTube series, book, all those kinds of yeah. would just be, but all those kinds of things down the line. So yeah, we want to be educators, but we also want to, I guess, advocate for and push education. Got it. That no, that makes no sense because I feel there's a huge overlap in what the climate designers group is doing in which this podcast is a part of in that we're doing the same thing specifically through or about design. And you brought up that important stat about things that are manufactured, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of people like me design those things that then are manufactured. So it starts in that design educational foundational thing. And we want to make this foundational. And it sounds like you do too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And I always wondered as I'm, I'm an educator, right? I'm one of those older guys you mentioned earlier. And I have always been confused about why the topic of climate change isn't a course that you have to take there's like a general ed requirement, right? And then like, there's, there's all these gen ed requirements and I know probably there's not enough time, right? But this is a, a huge issue. And when I saw your class, I'm like, that's the perfect type of class that every university should have. Yeah, I feel really passionate about that. I was actually fighting the administration my senior year to try and get a and environmental education institutionalized and they were just like no not about it what's the reasons what, what what was the problem with i actually got all the way up to the chancellor and she ugh, can i say this you can say it this is a good thing she basically was like look you've done a wonderful job and making our university look really good and we're so grateful but like we don't have the resources to do this i'm sorry wow i bet they do i bet they do have the resources to help yeah. a class get on they the absolutely do. absolutely do <laughs> how did you yeah. feel though when they told you that oh i was i mean i was really angry and that was kind of around the time when i formulated the idea of doing some sort of nonprofit. Uh, it definitely got like postponed by COVID, but it's so nice oh, yeah. to be finally doing it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I definitely was like, the theme of all of my environmental work so far has been like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. That's a good attitude to have, to be honest with you. I've been working in a lot of different systems, right? Like academic system, corporate system. And... So I, I've been able to learn the systems and, and maybe there's some intuition there, right? Where you just say, let's do this <laughs> because it's so important. Right. And I, I guess I'm a little bit more like that as I've gotten older, because I, I see like, oh, there's not a lot of time. Let's just get this out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I noticed from your social media accounts and the things that you're posting there that you're doing a lot of talks, you're, you're using that class is like a starting point to create sort of a, a bigger thing. 
and you've alluded to that a little bit. So I wonder how you've continued this work after graduation into the work you're doing now. Like, where have you been? What are you working on? Yeah. So, I mean, the nonprofit kind of is my way of, I just kind of realized, I think over time, I was like, why am I so fixated on this project I started in college? Like, and I was like, this is just the only thing that's important to me. I just don't care about mm -hmm. anything else. Obviously, like, as well, the actualization of those solutions. That's sure, really important. Sure, you got to make it happen. No, 100%. But I just think that, like, as much as I do, do try to, to you know, uh, dig in with community fights and make things happen in my community where I live, I think I want to dedicate the majority of my time, at least for this stage of my career, to education because it's been amazing just seeing the results people saying you know because of this program because of this program mm -hmm. i have decided to switch careers switch my major uh start a new initiative do that me, me and my family are doing this in my hometown and i'm like wow just the impact i can have it's like you know times several hundred folds versus me trying yeah, to do it yeah. on my own so yeah, I, I, I'm really passionate about this thing specifically. So I have been doing, yeah, you, you mentioned the social media. I have been doing kind of the social media circuit. I have been doing a bunch of press outreach and podcasts and radio interviews and fun stuff. Yeah, kind of really I noticed that. Yeah, you know, getting the word out there is like, feels like 70% of the work right now just because mm -hmm. that's how we're going to actually you know, make the connections with the educators and meet the young people and get the funding. Yeah. So, yeah, right now we're kind of in a big microphone stage and hopefully in a couple months we can kind of like delve down into the deep work. But yeah, right now I'm kind of show ponying myself around on this. It must be tiring, but the world. exciting, right? It's a tiring and exciting Oh, it's so exciting. It's like every day I open my inbox and it's like, Eric Benson wants to get, you have a <laughs> podcast. A guy from Illinois. <laughs> it's, it's thrilling, truly. So there's a climate scientist named Catherine Hayhoe, and she most famously, like in her TED Talk, was saying how the first and best thing you can do is just talk about climate change to as many people as you possibly can. And that that's exactly what you're doing. So kudos to you. I would push back and I would say the first and best thing you can do is talk about climate action. Oh, sure. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, that I think that's an issue. I do. I, and that's what I'm really, that's what I'm trying to combat on social media. That's what I've get, been getting excited. That's why I decided to take the content creation route yeah. is because I think there is just too much caring and not enough doing. Mm -hmm. And that results in things like phenomenons like climate anxiety. Yeah, for so sure. People are, you know, like literally feeling like this, you know, this, this crushing weight, but don't feel like they know how to get involved and they feel hopeless. And now you have these polls that are coming out that are saying the majority of people are just scrolling every time they see any content about the environment because they're like, mm. I can't handle that. That's too stressful. So, you know, in my work, I do really try to push people towards action and towards solutions. So, what we're doing with the program at Berkeley, what we'll continue to do is, you know, it's like, oh, you're really interested and in, you really love the regenerative agriculture unit. Okay, here's every single organization, local farm, entity, initiative, 
anything, 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 anything that I could think of that is in the barrier that you could show up to. I'm going to this. You can meet me there. We're very like, we're really like intense. <laughs> <laughs> we're very like, come on, let's go. You're a part of this. We got work to do. Let's get it popping. So yeah, like we're really trying to be about that action because mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that, I think there is a lot of conferences. <laughs> yeah. There are a lot of climate conferences and panels. Yeah. And suits. And there's not a whole lot of climate action. Yeah, I agree. I hear from other educators that, oh, we're, we're, we're not experts in sustainability or, or climate, so we don't feel comfortable including it or talking about it in a classroom. And you're, when you did this, you were not like, you don't have a PhD in, in any of that stuff, but you, you figured it out. So I'm wondering yeah, I didn't, what advice, I didn't have a yeah, you didn't even have a bachelor's degree, but you're smart enough, you figured it out. What kind of advice or what, what were some of your strategies in terms of creating that class that you can help my mm. listeners who are mainly educators? Mm move forward and try to do this because I think the interest is there. Mm -hmm. I know the interest is there. They just feel like, Ugh, I don't know. It's just another thing I need to learn and teach about. It's definitely not easy. I have to say, I don't think that like in terms of digital resources or anything, I don't think there are great and there is great information out there about a regenerative food system or circular economy even just creative creative design. I think mm -hmm. you kind of have to go into the books for that, but those books aren't super, super popular. It's kind of odd. Yeah. I would say, okay, if you're trying to figure out how you can teach or incorporate sustainability, but you feel like that's out of your league, one, it's not. And like, maybe, gosh, I learned it from going to different corners of the university. Yeah. I would literally like, I took classes in like five different colleges. Yeah. Yeah. But you, not, you went to those experts, really, right? Yeah. Right. And it wasn't necessarily from a book. And like, I would take a whole problem focused class on food systems and I would take their little about the solutions and I would steal it. So it's, it's really not easy to be able to say, like, here are those resources that are, you know, easy to learn. I guess the advice that I would give is, if you're struggling to figure out how to incorporate sustainability into your teaching, at least incorporate it into your action. So whether yeah. you're capable of starting a student club or whatnot, find a way where you can feel like you're empowering your students to not feel helpless themselves. I mean, whether that's your school does not have, I mean, starting a compost and a garden on campus would have huge impacts. I mean, there's studies that are showing that gardening for children is can be really, really great for their mental health, physical health, the, you know, alleviating food insecurity or food issues if your students are struggling with access to nutritious food, that sort of thing, and having a compost and whatnot, and then teach them about how composting is a climate solution mm -hmm. and about, you know, farm to table distances. There are a lot of ways you can make this hands-on uh, in a way that helps students, you know, stand up taller, feel good about themselves, and also have real applicable skills to take with them into their lives and a newfound passion. So I would say if you don't feel like you can teach it, 
action it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or do what you did, right? So if you, you have the deep interest in it, you're going to have to do a little bit more work. You're going to have to go out and, and find out more information or bring those people into your classroom, right? Like, hey, I went to this, took this class in regenerative agriculture. Hey, maybe that person would be willing to talk to my students, right? Yeah. Or, or gosh, that I don't want, I don't want to be like, oh, just figure out what I did. I'd like to be able to share with them what I did. So they don't that's what's do. coming. I know that's, that's your plan, right? Cause that, yeah, gonna, yeah. So I do have an interest form on our website, sustainableandjustfuture.org. And if you're an educator and you're like, please, I just want someone to hand me a I can't hand it to you tomorrow, but I can hand it to you sometime this year. I promise. And I'm <laughs> uh, definitely looking to be able to, yeah, have some guiding principles for educators who are looking to have a solutions-oriented, action-focused, and we are developing those right now, and they will be available this year. Well, I'm interested. I'm, I'm going to sign up. We'll pause here for a commercial and come back to hear more about Sage and her mission. Graphic design history is messy, it's incomplete, and it's full of overlooked, underrepresented, and ignored people and topics. Incomplete Design History podcast explores those topics and talks about those people to deepen and expand our knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of the history of graphic design. Season one and two are already available, covering women from graphic design history and BIPOC designers and design culture. Be sure to subscribe to Incomplete Design History wherever you listen to podcasts and get caught up before season three drops in the fall of 2023. I-N-C-O-M-P-L-E-T, Design History. When you were designing all of this, you, you mentioned you were going and taking all these classes and learning about it. And I'm curious about like, what are the, uh, do you get, did the students have requirements to do something from an action standpoint or how do you get them out out there whether it be you know switching something where they live or doing something more active politically or whatever how does how does all of that come together in that class you know i've never made it a requirement because uh, a lot of students have things going on you know you always get a couple students at the end of the semester where like hi you know, I really wanted to participate this semester, but my whole life fell apart, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it just kind of happens. I've never made it mandatory, but that's also the nice thing is I let people show us who they are. Uh, it's it's so funny, like, how in the student discussions each week, they'll be like, you know, this class, this this lecture really appealed to me because as a business major, and someone will be like, you know, as a vegan. <laughs> <laughs> It's so it's so nice to see people like to let people show you who they are and what they're passionate about. Yeah. So, so yeah, all we do is just make it as action focused as possible, and we have that little directory that we built on our website of all the different student organizations they could get involved in, or things going on in the Bay Area or in the City of Berkeley. So you know we're just constantly plugging them, and they just kind of end up getting swept into it. I think. And we do have a survey at the end of the semester that like we're asking them, you know, what kind of changes did you make? And so we we break it down into so many different questions that we ask them about, like, did you change your, you know, diet as a result of this? Like whether it's more plant-based or organic yeah. or more local or something like that. 
And then we ask them if they've reduced their waste. We ask them if they got involved in an organization as a result. And so there's always like a not applicable, you know, if they're like, I'm already involved, then they can just hit not applicable. We've had amazing uh, success rates and a lot of students are saying that, yeah, not only did they make lifestyle changes, but also they decided to go further, take more coursework, get involved right. in organizations, et cetera. Well, I'm glad that that is your strategy because I also found teaching, the more I make things mandatory, the less passionate people are about it. And it's smarter to have them follow their own voice, follow their own interests. And and if they're vegan, right, they're going to do more things around that versus like, yeah. you have to do this or you don't get a good grade. So I'm glad that that's your strategy. <laughs> I was happy to hear that actually. I think at one point we might have had a waste audit, man a mandatory waste audit. I don't think we do that anymore. Uh, but just like asking them to track their own waste for a, a day or something and see what their insights were. But nothing where it's like you're required to go to a protest. Right. No, yeah. Actually, I did a waste audit in grad school and I found myself cheating because <laughs> <laughs> I was getting so embarrassed. <clears throat> like here I am, like I'm this advocate I care about and I try to make the right choices and I'm like, Oh God, this is embarrassing that I have this much trash in a day. So I'm just not going to include that in the photograph or I'm going to leave that on the table and claim that someone else threw it away and it wasn't mine. You know, <laughs> I th see, I think that's funny. I think it's funny how zero waste got co-opted. And of course, under capitalism, everything's going to be, but zero waste got co-opted to be about like zero plastic instead of mm -hmm minimalism because that's right. the primary that is the primary principle of zero waste is to produce and consume less less yeah so i think yeah that because that's also i think where people feel so discouraged but also just mad about trying mm -hmm. like trying to be held accountable for their waste or whatever they're like what can i do about the fact that all my groceries come wrapped in plastic and i'm like nothing you're so yeah. light up what we can do is not shop at h&m because we don't need to do that so I think like, yeah, the principles got messed up. It's more zero. I, I, sorry, I could go on about this forever. I just gave the keynote speech <laughs> for Zero Waste Youth USA. And uh, yeah, I had a whole so much to say about this. Like zero waste at its fundamental is supposed to be about conserving resources. And so that means no fast fashion. That means mm -hmm. low repairable electronics. That means long lasting I mean, it means no cars. I was going to say long-lasting cars, but no cars, public transit. <laughs> yeah, it's about conserving resources. It's supposed to be a design principle. It's not supposed to be about fitting your trash into a job. I know. I, I, I don't know what happened. I, I just got sidetracked in that whole yeah. thing. <laughs> well, I, there was something you said earlier which struck a note with me, which was teachers that come in and talk doom and gloom and then the student and but the idea is like oh the students will respond and do something great with this terrible news but in in reality that's not what happens they just they can't handle it it's overwhelmed they're overwhelmed and that was my mistake when i first started teaching i was very passionate about it i brought these topics into the the design classroom and i thought people would be as passionate about it as i was and guess what they weren't and mainly, I think it was because I was being so negative and it took me a while to kind of figure that out and like you just present solutions. Like, here's a way we can do this. Let's experiment with doing it. And yeah. I'm wondering, 
Do you have any other advice? Is there some other good advice that you can give in terms of how to really inspire? Uh, mm. No, that's a great question. I think it really is the energy that you bring, honestly. Uh, I'm a passionate person and also it's infectious, I think, because I'll also be in there talking about my own involvements, the ways that I'm, oh, I'm working on this. Oh, one of my best friends is doing that. You know, oh, like this was, you know, let me tell you this little life story from when I was 16 and why this is so important to me. And I come and I bring my deep enthusiasm. And I think it just, I think it just naturally is infectious because I'm walking around, I'm heated up, I'm excited, I'm like using my hands. I'm, and I think, you know, when someone, it, it's peer pressure, really. If someone thinks something is cool, then you think it's cool. And so if I think, like, I'm up there, like, gushing about compost. I'm like, you guys, <laughs> it's a double climate solution. Because not only does it avoid the methane emissions from landfill, it also, and, and like, they're just like, what is going on? She's so, but they're not going to forget that. They're not going to forget that, like, huge outburst of energy I have. And because Berkeley does have a three-bin system, there's uh, landfill recycling and compost everywhere you go, yeah. and the municipal compost gets taken to a facility in Richmond, which is a climate campaign you could start in your own community to get some funding for a facility and, like, you know, the compost collectors and the green bins and, yeah, because that is a way that you can actualize regenerative agriculture and climate solutions on a community level because we're not just waiting around for sweeping national legislation anymore. We're getting it done on the community level. Anyways. Um, See, now I'm excited. You know what I mean? <laughs> they are going to they are gonna hear their instructor, Sage, who's their same age, up there like, compost! And then they are never going to forget that. They're never going to be able to short improperly anymore. They're going to walk past the compost and they're going to go, okay, compost. I think it's really about bringing your own passion, your own energy. And yeah, it literally it becomes a peer pressure thing. What I think is cool becomes cool because they think I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think it has something to do too with like you're close to their age and there's more of like she gets us versus like oh, people like oh. me who are older and like this guy listens to music from the 90s. What's wrong with him? You know, okay, I would say it's a little bit that, but what I've been thinking about a lot lately is that kind of like age is like a choice, honestly, mm. once you get past a certain point. Like, I will meet some 30 year olds I know are like crotchety. And that's true. Some, They're curmudgeons already. Yeah. Some 30 year olds are like really boring, like not wonder, not enjoyable to be around people. But I've met several people in their mid 40s lately. Who are just full of life. So, that's me. That's me. So, right? Like, so gorgeous. So, like, yeah. So, I think it's a choice. I think you can be, and I think Gen Z in particular, I think we're starting to really look for older role models. I think a lot of us are trying to get rid of that idea that, like, the only thing that's cool is youth because it yeah. sucks because as you get older, you start, you know what I mean? Like, it's a process of, self-destruction yeah so yeah be hollywood beauty standards aside i think a lot of us are looking for like guidance and role models and whatnot who are in their 80s and i like see all these mm. cool white-haired women on tiktok like showing their little outfits and i'm like yes this is how i want to be <laughs> i think it's a choice i think you can be a really sick 
45 year old teacher and i plan on being one so i hope you like, do i don't i don't think that there's something inherent to youth and i kind of want to get rid of that narrative because one sure. i think youth climate activism is a little bit of a meat grinder mm -hmm. like they're like oh like you're so young and you're doing this and it's like yeah i was too young to be doing that actually as a matter of fact that's it, true yeah it, 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 boy. i burned out I, I shouldn't have been doing that i was a child yeah and two it's like well the work you know, if this isn't kids next door, we're not like aging out at the age of 20, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and we won't be young forever, but I, I will still continue. Yeah. Now, what thing. happens happens quicker than you think. I can already feel it in my right shoulder today. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder too, like, there's this idea that you brought up about if you, you know, you can't teach it, you should live it or do it. And I'm wondering too, like, if, if you're teaching, if you're in front of the class, but you're also setting that like good role model example, like showing this is what I'm doing at my home, right? And being honest about it, like your pitfalls, but your successes. I feel like that's what you're also referring to, but but maybe I'm I missed your missed your idea there. Yeah, like showing them what you're doing in your life can be impactful, but also if you yourself have the time to go down to city council and, you know, make comment on the bill that's up about more bus funding, then you get to talk to your students and be like, how cool am I making change here? Right. Because I think, I think that that is exactly like people feel there is this defeatist sentiment that we need like Joe Biden to sign sweeping climate legislation into law and that's the only thing that we can do mm -hmm. and i see it i see it online all the time i see it in every comment section people are like oh my god don't talk to me about my fast fashion purchasing go after government go after the corporation's responsible and i'm like right. okay well you're financially incentivizing them anyways but also like i think it's yeah it's this really defeatist narrative and i just don't think people realize that a lot of this change is going to have to happen on the local level because that's how climate resilience works. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we've been trying to do this like huge masses of land all doing the exact same thing and it's not tailored, it's not regional, it's not ancestral, it has no root in indigenous knowledge like, you know. Yeah. So whether it's redesigning our food systems or public transit or whatever, there's so many things that can really only be actualized on the local level. And maybe the funding can come from federal or state or whatever. But we need, we need, yeah, like if people feel more empowered to make change in their, if you change your city and I change mine and they change theirs, we can patchwork together real systemic change. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Your, your comment about individual actions matter. I'm 100% on board with that. I, I do hear the same things you do about, well, there's these hundred, these hundred corporations and really, they're really the problem and what can we really do? Yeah, but the, 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 the hundred corporations referred to in that statistic, the statistic being a hundred corporations are responsible for 71% of, That's uh, right. That's the number. Yeah, yeah. Carbon, I don't know if it's carbon emissions overall or carbon emissions from fossil fuels because like 20% of carbon emissions don't even have to do with fossil fuels. It's like animal agriculture and stuff and deforestation. The, the hundred corporations it's referring to are oil and gas. And I find yeah. that very boring. I find that to be an extraordinarily boring statistic because, yeah, of course, obviously. Yeah. But why do they pull so much oil and gas? Because they are financially incentivized 
to do so. And who is financially incentivizing them? Apple, H&M, Toyota. Like it is, it is this consumer system. It truly, mm-hmm. truly is. It is mm-hmm. TJ Maxx. I promise. Yeah. TJ Maxx is a is a carbon. What are they called? Is, is a is a climate criminal. You yeah, that's I mean? the word. Yeah, the climate criminal. Yeah, no, I think I think that's totally right. I agree with you. And I struggled for a long time going through apathy and and what is it? Uh, anxiety. And really coming to this point of like, well, what what is there left for me to do except actually just do something and celebrate that I'm doing something? And that I learned later on was this concept called hope punk or the 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 every fight is worth the fight, right? Even how matter how small it is. And so that's what keeps me going. That's why I'm doing this show. That's why you're here because you're here to help inspire others to do what you're doing. Because you're right, that patchwork can can help change the system. 100%. Yeah. So I have one last question for you. It's, it's my favorite one. And that is, you're an educator already. You already are doing this. But if you were to step into a design classroom, like one where I'm in, or any design classroom from architecture on what would you uh, what would you assign the students to do? What would you want them to tackle as your project or, or class? What a wonderful question. Well, I think the obvious answer, and if you don't know the term I'm about to say, then go ahead and learn it. It's really, <laughs> really incredible, is to operate from a cradle to cradle design standpoint. And so if you haven't read Cradle to Cradle by, I'm, I always say the last name's wrong, McDonough and Brognart. Yeah, uh, yeah. That book changed my life. That was the book that got me into this whole thing. Yeah, read that book. Uh, but I think I would be challenging them to, I think still what I'm seeing with design is too much uh, organic cotton and recycled polyester, recycled plastic bottles, whatever. And I want to see more creative landfill recovery so whether that's recycled clothing or furniture whatever it is electronics i don't think we need more organic cotton i don't think that's good for the planet i think it's bad for the planet and i don't think that recycled uh plastic bottles are really doing much except in except making people feel good about recycling their plastic bottles (laughs) yeah so yeah so i think i would just be in there trying to challenge folks to think about design systems that are more about landfill resource recovery, but also divesting from the concept of goods in the first place. So how do we, you know, what are those design models like car share? Like, I I really like the gig car share model in the Bay Area, where it's this fleet of cars you can unlock it at any time. It's not like Zipcar where you have to like reserve it for a whole day or something like that. Uh, but I really like this model because it's turning the concept of a car from a good into a service. And so that's that's the design thinking that I'm trying to see push the envelope rather than more recycled. Yeah. Is it kind of like rent the, rent the, rent the runway? Is that is that a similar thing for you? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You can just rent clothes as opposed to buy them. Yeah, honestly, I know very little about sustainable fashion for a young woman just because I only thrift, so. Yeah, well, that's another perfect thing, right? Like, how do you 
design project to make thrifting the norm. Easier. Yeah. Yeah, like Depop. Love Depop. Yeah, well, uh, what's the, what's next for you? Do you have anything else big coming up? I heard some interviews happening. Where, where can we find you going forward? I am building the nonprofit. That is my <laughs> building the nonprofit and trying to uh, build a relationship with people on social media. I think getting the doing social media content creation is gonna is like half of the work at this point because I just want to make these ideas as successful as possible, and I'd like to help everyday people feel like they are co-conspirators in the environmental movement and push more people into it. So yeah. I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Sage Lanier. My last name is spelled L-E-N-I-E-R. And I'm also on Twitter, but I haven't used it yet, but I will one day. <laughs> well, I think you have like a lot of followers, which is good. And some looks like some pretty important followers too. So hopefully they can help amplify what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You've done really well since you started in January. That's, that's hard, really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, some of it was coming from, I mean, I was doing content creation in late 2019, 2020, early 2020, and then stopped. So I had a little bit of a base, but yeah, I just really hit the ground running in January with yeah. the content creation again. Well, I'm actually really inspired by what you're doing. I'm I'm on the same page as you and, and trying to do that for my end. So I think there's a lot I can learn from the work you've been doing and specifically that class. I want to bring some of that into into my classroom. Well, thank you so much, Sage. It's been quite fun to talk with you and I wish you the best in your work because it's super important. Thank you, Eric. You as well. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding, Batul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help. Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers. <laughs>